Welcome to the Becoming Beautiful I Am podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joan. Have you ever wondered what people will say about us 100 years from now? Think about it. In the same way that we look back and we notice certain things, like on July 28th of 1914, World War I begins. It ends on November 11th of 1918. And in the spring of 1918, the Spanish flu pandemic begins. It's like they go from war to a complete state of rest. I wonder what the people of 3020 will experience. I wonder if they will have true peace or if they will be waging war like we are now. So I'm thinking podcasts are a record in time and I'm hopeful that 100 years from now, when people look back at podcasts recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, they will find Becoming Beautiful I Am. Why? Well, because I'm hopeful that this podcast will play a pivotal part in the spiritual awakening that's happening right now. In 2020, we are at a pivotal point in time. We are 401 years since the enslavement of my ancestors. We're literally watching the Abrahamic covenant unfold before our very eyes. What's the Abrahamic Covenant? I know some of you will know, but for those of you who are just kind of tuning in and even getting a grasp of where we are in time, I want to take you back to Genesis 15, verses 12 to 14. Here's what it says, and I'm reading the Amplified Version of the Bible. Uh, It says, When the sun was setting, a deep sleep overcame Abraham, and a horror, a terror, a shuddering fear a nightmare of great darkness overcame him. Now here's the thing. The next verse goes on and God interprets the dream for him, but we don't exactly know how much time has passed. All we know is that he's given the interpretation. And here's what it says. Know for sure that your descendants will be strangers temporarily in a land of Egypt or a land and then brackets Egypt that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But on that nation whom whom your descendants will serve, I will bring judgment and afterward they will come out of that land with great possession. Okay, so this is what I call the Abrahamic covenant. And some 400 years later, Moses would play a pivotal and prophetic role as God ends the enslavement of the Hebrew or the Israelite people rebuilds his relationship with them, and then ushers them into what we call the promised land. After the last episode, I got really excited about introducing you to the forgiveness process that I use to heal people. And I call this process conscious Christ-like forgiveness. But even as I started preparing for this, and I was preparing for things like we have to forgive the basement dweller, We have to forgive the screamer, the runner, the freezer. The situation with George Floyd arose. So I'm sure the whole world knows. But 
When we watch the videos from all the different angles, what we bear witness to is a murder. What we see is an enforcement officer, a police officer, put his knee on George Floyd's neck and presses in until he dies. And as I watch that video and, you know, bear witness to, bore witness to what happened in the aftermath, I saw all the characters of my dream, The Dark Knight, show up live and in person. I saw the basement dweller, the one who kills us, the one who murders us. I saw the onlookers, uh, the people who bear witness but do nothing about it. I saw the homeowner. I saw the realtor. I saw the soul lover. And we're going to talk about all of those in depth at some other time. But one of the things that happened, you know, over the past week and a half or so was that, you know, though I really wanted to teach the forgiveness process, I felt this pull to acknowledge what was going on in the world, especially as it relates to the African diaspora in the United States. George's death, you know, is serving now as a tipping point. And what we're seeing in the protests and what we're seeing in the burning of cities is really the cry of the oppressed going up to God. And what is going to unfold, and it's going to unfold very quickly, is that God is going to respond. In the last podcast, I talked about waking up one morning to a voice. It was the voice of a friend. And she was saying to me, Joan, a wave is coming. It's going to hit you in the head. And then she gave me an important message. And she emphasized it by saying it three, three times. She said, you're going to speak through it. You're going to speak through it. You're going to speak through it. And for those of us who are dreamers and are visioners, uh, there's an understanding that when something is said three times or when it's emphasized even through an image three times, it typically means that that event will happen and it will happen very soon. So, you know, as I reflect on that, I have to say that the murder of George Floyd, bearing witness to it, has been a significant blow to the head, not just for me, but for the African nation. And since viewing that video from all the different angles, I've had to do multiple forgivenesses. You know, it's a complete atrocity. It's a complete devaluing of life. It's a complete, it's a scene of complete, it's even hard for me to say it, but when you see a complete absence of empathy, the unwillingness of another to bear witness to the struggle and to actually help a person out or to feel the struggle, when you bear witness to the trance and the inability to withdraw from an act that would take another person's life, it's traumatizing. So I found myself moving through an intense grieving process, you know, and so if you don't know you know, where you are in the grieving process, there are kind of these emotional stages that you're moving through. 
you know, like I found myself like in complete shock and dis- disbelief, right? Then there was the, did that just really happen? Like, you know, you ask yourself the question, did that just really happen? Did I just witness somebody die? And then you go into this, this place of like, why? <laughs> why, Lord, why? Um, and then, you know, white people, why white people, why? And then African people, why African people, why? And you begin to bargain, Lord, let my people go. <laughs> like, literally, I sat there with in prayer and with tears in my eyes. And I said, Lord, it needs to end. Let my people go. And then, of course, after that, you know, there's a range of emotions that come like the anger is, you know, what we're seeing right now is the anger. But there's also I'm not so much in myself, but but then again, in myself, there's a bit of guilt. Like, you know, like, how do we how do we resolve this? What do we do about it? Um, What can I do about it? You know, and as I asked myself that question, it took me a minute, but I really had to remind myself of the fact that I know where we are. I know the moment in time where we're at and that I have a particular part to play in this process as it unfolds. But then I had to remember that not everyone is clear about what their purpose is. I might be clear about the part that I need to play in this as healer and teacher and guide in terms of whatever visions and dreams come my way. But we all have a part to play in how this journey unfolds. We all have a partnering role that we develop with God so that he can instruct each of us about the specific pivotal part that we are to play in this journey. So, you know, for a little bit, I became depressed, (laughs) but I know that as soon as I forgive, I move out of that. And so I was able to quickly just transcend the depression and then move to that place of acceptance and hope. So one of the things I really want to drive home right now is that if you watch that video or heard about it, you are directly or indirectly experiencing a traumatic event. And there's going to be a range of responses to that. And the ways that we overcome those responses is by moving through a forgiveness process. So I know I experience unforgiveness in a number of ways. It's, you know, I'm going to feel low, the low mood. I'm going to experience um, hopelessness. I'm also going to become afraid. And so as I forgive, what I'm doing is I'm releasing myself to come back to that place of high energy, also to come back to that place of clarity and that place of focus. And one of the things that I really had to remember as I was moving through this journey and the process is actually how much I detest the onlooker, how much I detest onlooking in myself as well as other people. And I was, I was remembering that one of the things I've been trying to do all over the last little while 
is to convince the African diaspora of our need to heal so that we can come together and act together to shift our circumstance and our situation. And not all people, but it seems like the majority of people that I spoke to would constantly give me a look or make a comment. And it was always to the effect of like, come into 2020, we're not there anymore. We don't have any wounds to heal. And it has frustrated me. But I think as we come to this tipping point, we're awakening to our circumstance all over the globe, to the circumstance of the African all over the globe. George Floyd is our tipping point, but he's the tipping point among a string of events where black men and women have been murdered or have committed suicide after encountering law enforcement. And um, I think what we have to recognize is that even in the midst of COVID-19, even in the midst of a pandemic, it seemed there is no force that can help us to be good to one another, to love one another with that unselfish love that we're commanded to do. The murder of black people seems to be a normal in North America, and I would suggest all over the world. But I think, you know, the denial has been the brutality of colonization and the ways in which it has continued even to today. You know, and we only have to look at the African continent, the division um, of one continent into 54 different countries. We only have to look at the impoverishment that has been systematically orchestrated and yet the raping of the lands. That is a type of violence as well that many of us feel helpless and hopeless about. But nevertheless, one of the things that needs to happen is the awakening to white supremacy and the ways in which it still filters itself into our everyday lives. This is a time when those who belong to Africa will wake up and begin to see the reality of their circumstance. If we go back and we study the liberation process, let's call it the journey out of Egypt and into the promised land, what we'll recognize is that this happens in four distinct stages. Stage number one is really the outcry of the people to God. En masse, there is a tipping point and they recognize the reality of their oppression hits them in the head and they begin to wail and they begin to cry and God hears them. So what is happening right now for those of us who are members of the African diaspora is that we're awakening to the oppression. But some of us will awaken differently until we do uh, come to that place where our voices go up almost as one. And there are some of us who for a little while are going to try and de-stress by basically saying, no, this is not our reality. You know, a friend of mine, she's from the Middle East, and she told me a Proverbs, and it, it, it goes something like this. She says, 
if you pick up a pot, I've, I, I, I've got a pot here, you know, and, uh, and she says, you bang it with a spoon, it becomes an alarm, right? And so uh, you, you, you have the alarm and you raise the alarm. She says, if you bang that pot over the heads of people who are truly sleeping, they wake up, they immediately jump up, right? They're startled, they wake up. But for the person who is pretending to sleep, you can bang that pot over their head from morning till night and they will act and uh, almost as though they're in a coma. <laughs> they will not allow themselves to respond. And so what we need to recognize at this point in time is that there are some people who are sleeping and there are some people who are completely pretending to sleep. So, but even so, <laughs> all of us will at one point come on side because there are things that are still to come that will completely get us to move as one body and as one voice and will finally move to that place where God hears us and then begins the process of bringing us out. So that's the first stage in the liberation process. Here's what the second looks like. It's a period of great unrest before the departure. The departure ends with this epic scene of parting the Red Sea. But during this time of unrest, we're also seeing these miracles, these wonders, and then the plagues, right? We're seeing the, the lice plague, the frog plague, you know, the livestock die, there's pestilence there's locusts, there is the darkness, and then eventually the killing of the firstborn. But here's the thing, neither the Israelites nor the Egyptians were comfortable during this time. Here's what the third stage of the liberation process is going to look like. The people enter the wilderness. And so we can talk about a physical wilderness or a spiritual wilderness. And the way that I want to think about it is as a spiritual wilderness. In the wilderness or the desert, however you want to call it, the goal is relationship building. So, you know, this is a time where you'll be provided for with the basic necessities, but at the same time, God is teaching you, teaching us how to listen to his voice how to know him completely. And at the end of that time, there is a ceremonial covenant between us and God. And at that point, we are ready to move out. So the fourth stage, of course, is the movement into the promised land. And even before moving into the promised land, there is the waging of a war, right, between the people who exist in the land and those who are coming in. And God is going to help us do it all the way through. But at the end of this particular stage of the liberation process, God is saying this. He's saying, when you go into that land, don't forget who brought you out. The other thing he's going to say is, don't take credit for it. Don't take any personal credit for the going out and the coming in. Give it all to me because it was I who did it. The other thing he's going to say is, don't give credit 
to any other gods. Don't go back to Egypt. (laughs) And the final piece, the final piece, he's going to say, don't repeat the pattern. Don't become an oppressor. I never want to see this amongst my people again. There is always the potential for us to mirror the experiences that we've had. And that lives on for three and four generations. So one of the things at the end of the time when we're going into the promised land that we must be very careful about is completely purifying ourselves, destroying the mirror images that cause us to be in a place of pain, of unforgiveness and unlove. So, you know, in my mind, we have a long journey ahead as we awaken from this dark night. And, you know, as I offer a memorial to George Floyd and all the other black men, women, and children who've paid the ultimate sacrifice, really bringing us to that tipping point, I wanted this time share a vision with you that I had sometime in September or October of 2019. So in some of my visions, I'm a participant and in others, I'm an observer. And in this particular vision, I'm an observer. And as the vision begins, what I can describe as the scenery and what I came to understand as the scenery was I was in a desert wasteland. As the vision begins, one of the very first things that I'm shown is a tree. It's small, perhaps about, I'd say about three feet tall, but I notice something immediately. The tree is dead. There's no leaves on the branches. And the other thing is that the branches are parched. They're dried out to the point where they have cracked. The next thing that I am shown um, is a bird, a really large bird that's perched on one of its limbs. And at first it seems as though I'm looking at an eagle and then it quickly transforms into a vulture. The next thing that happens is the vulture swoons. It kind of moves slowly from side to side and then it falls to the ground. And I know it's dead. The next thing, almost like someone is pushing me from the back, but it doesn't feel like a struggle. It feels like they're just kind of almost moving me forward, uh, you know, like I'm floating, but they're moving me forward. And I'm brought to the edge of a precipice and below me is a site. I mean, I've never seen anything like it before, not even in the movies, but it's a site of a grand disaster. I'm seeing an enormous canyon below me, and it seems like it was artificially created by something like an atomic bomb. Everything is burnt, and like, it's just like a black, ashy, sooty cover over everything. And then in kind of my mind's eye, because I don't actually see it in the vision, but I'm shown uh, this image. It's the image of a river that's dying. It's like the river once flowed, overflowed, and it actually gave life to the land. But now 
it was on its very last breath. I saw like just the trickles of water um, in this place. And so within myself, there was this urge to look around. And so I began to turn clockwise. And so the scene, if I can now describe, because now it's available to me fully, it's blue skies. It looks like I'm in the desert somewhere. There's nothing really growing, but there it's like a mix of like desert, I guess, and rocks at the same time. And so as I turn around, what I notice, there's no vegetation. There's nothing living in this, in this place. The land is flat. It's lifeless. Uh, it's deserted. But then as I make my way back to kind of like facing, you know, forward again, what I notice is that downstream, I guess you could say downstream or down from where this disaster, this bomb had exploded, this fire, whatever it was, uh, downstream from that uh, was a small village. It's not even like I can describe it as a village because it was a small um it was a small place of tents, um, like little shacks that people had attempted to build. Like, um, if you can imagine, it's kind of kind of like something I've seen, like in those images of Africa or India, small houses with like you know zinc on top, two plies of zinc or something. But what I was seeing was that absolutely no one in this place had survived, and it was at this point that the vision shifted. Um, and what I began to observe was a different scene. Now I was in a different time zone um, or a different time period. And I was the observer outside of a moving car. So I'm floating alongside this car that's traveling along. And I'm noticing the car. The car is brand new. It's mint green, and it looks like something from the 1950s. You know, I've looked it up, and it looks something like the 1949 Chevrolet uh, Bel Air. <laughs> That's kind of the closest thing uh, that I found to it. And in the driver's seat um, is this muscular white man. He's the driver of the car, and his glasses catches my attention because they're black and square, kind of like my husband. So um, then I noticed something else. The steering wheel, even though he's driving um, in what is a North American city, his steering wheel is on the right-hand side of the car. And then there's a woman sitting in the passenger seat, but the only thing about her that really grabs my attention is that she's wearing one of those handkerchiefs on her head. Um, the man glances in the rearview mirror and that catches my attention. So then I look to the back of the car to see what he's looking at. And then I notice that there are people in the back, but they're laid out like dead bodies talk, stacked on top of one another. And there's so many of them that there's an overflow. They're going right out the back. And the best way I can, I can describe that is to say they, they're laid out like on a train, not like a choo-choo train, like a travel train, but more like the train of a bridal gown. So as the vision progresses, my attention is drawn to the road and now I'm looking forward to where they're traveling. And so what I'm seeing is that, you know, the, the road is kind of going towards a horizon 
and, I, and at the end is water. I can see that it's water because it shimmers. And then on both sides, I can see that um, it's a it's cityscape, but I can see that there are apartment buildings, businesses. Um, and then here's the thing, out of nowhere comes this light. And the only way that I can describe the light is that it's a blinding white light and it's all consuming. And right there, the vision ends. So here's the interpretation. The first part of the vision suggests that some unnatural disaster is either going to happen or has already happened. But at the end of the day, what it's going to do is it's going to destroy or it's going to divide a nation and cause it to become a spiritual wasteland. But God is going to do a powerful thing. He's going to move in a really powerful way to bring new life to that nation. And he will do this through a spiritual awakening of those people who've been born for such a time as this, of those people who've been called to be ministers in this time. So let me break down how I came to this interpretation. The first thing that we see in the vision is the tree. And the tree represents people or leaders. The dead tree suggests that people or leaders have come to a complete point of failure and they have not fulfilled their destiny. The entire scene is in the desert and it speaks to death. Um, it speaks to the absence of life. The eagle turned vulture forces me to focus on nations that once soared as eagles or peoples that once soared as eagles, but who have now become vultures. So the American eagle is known all over the world, but what I discovered through my research is that the founding fathers once considered making the turkey vulture its national symbol. But more important, I don't think we focus on the bird so much as the transition from, from this highly favored position to uh, one that is detested by God. So the vulture is the bird of prey. And in Matthew 24, verse 28, Jesus says this, um, and he's really speaking about the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, but what he says is wherever the corpses are, there the vultures will gather. And so I was really kind of, you know, looking at that and thinking about the people who are in the back of the car and those being ministers of this day and how different they will be from those that we consider religious leaders in our time. I know this because when God interpreted the vision for me, he actually showed me as one of those people who was awakening. And so I understood that these are people who have a pivotal role to play um, in the awakening process. They have to awaken first and then they will help others to awaken. But they will have a pivotal role in helping us all move through the coming out and the going in process. In 2020, um, you know, we're experiencing COVID, which some call a pandemic. 
And we've also experienced a, an economic collapse. Now we're in a place of civil unrest, um, inspired both by COVID as well as the multiple men, women, and children of African descent who brought us to the tipping point. So the pattern even suggests that at some point we'll enter a civil war. I won't say 100% that is the way that it will go, but there is a pattern that we traditionally follow, movement from a natural disaster into an economic collapse, into civil unrest, and then into a civil war. So keep that in mind. Now, a car, let me explain a car. A car in a dream or a vision represents various aspects of life. It can represent life itself. It can represent family, a personal job, and a ministry. It's really our calling is really what it represents. So what was eventually revealed to me is a message about a global ministry of God, of Christ himself. When I asked for clarification around who the driver was and who the passenger was, what I was shown was that in this dream is present the Holy Trinity. Christ is the driver. He sits at the right hand of the Father, which in this case uh, comes in the form of a woman. Uh, but Christ is the driver. He is managing the movement ahead. And then the light that comes in, the all-consuming light, is that of the Holy Spirit. And of course, as I mentioned before, the folks in the back are not actually dead. They're in a cocoon stage where now new life and the awakening is bringing them up. So... What I have to say is that the situation in the United States is the beginning of a huge movement of the Holy Spirit. And I won't belabor the interpretation because if there's anything that I know about God is he says exactly what he needs to say. He doesn't say any more and he doesn't say any less because he doesn't want me to mess up <laughs> what is going to happen in the future. He doesn't want me to like, you know, launch into some great thing about who I am, what you are, what you're supposed to do. He just wants me to bring the message. And for those people who are out there, who the idea of the minister and being called into ministry in order to serve in this time of the awakening, perhaps your ears just ought to perk up. Today's episode is really a memorial. It's a memorial to the last 401 years. It's a memorial to all of my ancestors. It's a memorial to all of those who have made the sacrifice, who have brought us to this tipping point. And it's a memorial to all of those who have died in 2020 and who have brought us to this place where the cry of the oppressed can be heard by God. And one of the things that I think we're all going to have to remember as we move through this process is the liberation cannot focus on individuals. Even if I am successful in achieving my own physical, emotional, spiritual, economic, you name it, freedom, the oppressive situation for everyone else is going to remain. So liberation 
and what we might call the bringing out process is about diving deep. It's about looking at the root cause of the oppression. And this is where we begin to notice the factors that contribute to the enslavement and the degradation of different groups. We're also going to have to see how it's not just about Black people, but there is enslavement and degradation happening to other people. And ultimately, what we're going to have to realize is this. We're going to have to look at this from a godly perspective and a humanitarian perspective. And we're going to have to wake up to the war that's being waged against us. We're finally going to have to acknowledge that there's a spiritual war and there's a plan to divide us and conquer us. So here's what the plan looks like from a very high level. You know, it's like a commander speaking to his army, and that army is coming against the human race. We can't see them coming, right? We experience them through each other. But here's how the fight is going. They're going to divide us first by geographic regions. So whether that's a continent or a country. They're going to divide us by states and provinces, cities, towns, even neighborhoods. And then through each of us, what we're going to see is that at the center is this focus on status. Pride is about seeing ourselves as higher than another based on what we have, based on how we behave, based on how they respond to us. It's called false pride. It's not a true pride. Humility, on the other hand, is about seeing your value, knowing your value, and yet recognizing that you're not higher than me and I am not, I am not higher than you. We're all human. We're all human beings. But the plan is to place pride at the center of our heart. The plan is to give some a lot and then to give some a little, and then have us compare ourselves to one another. And then through some socialization process, they teach us that we're not to feel good about ourselves unless we have a lot, <laughs> unless we've captured territory, unless we're like economically at the highest status, right? We shouldn't feel good about ourselves. So, after that, the plot continues by any means necessary. They're going to inspire within us this sense of lack, right? So it's almost like I never have enough. Everything about this plan goes against how God wants us to be. But with this sense of lack and this inspiring of like emptiness, there's jealousy and there's envy and out of envy comes murder and rage and everything else. The plan is for us to continually wage war against each other. Because if we're at peace and we are at rest, we can actually grow where we begin to see into the spiritual and we begin to see what's coming. But if we're constantly at war, never at rest, never at peace. We're distracted. This is the goal of the enemy. 
this is how they win the war. This is just one level of division. This is by geographic space. But then there's divisions by race. There's divisions by ethnicity. There's divisions by gender. And of course, the ultimate religion. Repeat and rinse in the water of pride. Repeat and rinse in the water of lack. This is the war that we're really fighting. This is the war you and I need to wake up to. The Abrahamic covenant is really about humanity's spiritual oppression. And we're at a point in God's calendar where he's going to shine a bright light. And at first it's going to focus on the African nation and the diaspora all around the world. And then what God is going to expect is that we shift the entire world. He wants to make sure that we are the ones to do it, that we rise to the place where we can see into the spiritual. And then we make sure that the oppression ends. So as I end this podcast, I want to take you back to the dream called The Dark Knight. And I want to highlight the characters in the dream, and I want to relate them to George Floyd's death. George died. And if you recall, in my dream, eventually Christ would announce to me that I died. What I want to suggest is that there are many of us in the African diaspora, there are many of us in the African nation who are dead. Derek Chauvin, the police officer who murdered him, has become the basement dweller. The three cops who were behind him, the people who were present, and in fact now the whole world has become onlookers. The authority figures like the President of the United States, the senators, the mayors, the civil servants, these individuals deny the presence of a broken and very dangerous basement dweller. We call them the homeowners. The media and the, the institutions, the various institutions that support and work hard to sell us a story. The story is that there is no oppression. You know, the story is that, you know, to kill someone just the way that George died is okay. He was deserving of it because he might have been a criminal. These people we call the realtors. The house is God's creation. The house is the entire planet. It's the earth and it's humanity in one. And in the basement of this house are the lost parts of ourselves. You know, there's also in the basement the people who watch over us. And then there are the runners, <laughs> the screamers, and the freezers. These are the parts of ourselves that are completely overwhelmed by fear. And yet, by running, by screaming, and freezing, we act almost like beacons that bring the dark shadows and the dark spirits in. When we heal, that ends 
because we begin to see into the spiritual and we are then prepared to fight the war, the true war that we are all fighting. Christ is now here and he's here to tell us that we died here a really long time ago and it's time now for us to get up and find our way back. I hope this makes sense. So in the next episode, we'll talk about forgiveness. We'll talk about forgiveness of the basement dweller, and we'll talk about forgiveness of the one who is overwhelmed by fear, whether they show up as the runner, um, the screamer, or I should say the fighter, or the, uh, the frozen one. And then in the next episode, I'm also going to introduce you to an acronym. That acronym is called FLAB, F-L-A-B. So unless you listened to the last episode, I know you're wondering, what does it, like what, FLAB? And so I'm not talking about, you know, the FLAB on your belly. I'm actually talking about a process that comes right out of the Bible. And... As I prepare you for what's to come, I want to read Matthew 18, verse 18 to 24. And I'm going to be reading again from the Amplified Bible. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, whatever you bind, that is forbid, declare to be inappropriate and unlawful on earth, shall have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, that is permit and declare lawful on earth, shall have already been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two believers on earth agree, that is, they are of one mind and in harmony about anything that they ask within the will of God, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, meeting together as my followers, I am there among them. And then he talks about forgiveness. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him and let it go? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered him, I say to you, not up to seven times, but 70 times seven. So, did you notice the flab? So here's what flab means. F is for forgiveness. L is for loosed. Loosing, <laughs> A is for agreement, B is for bind, flab. So I want you to chew on that until we connect the next time. So I want to thank you for listening to Becoming Beautiful I Am. My name is Joan Samuels Dennis. Send me a note. Let me know what you think about my visions, my dreams, and my interpretations. If you have a dream you'd like to share with me, please go right ahead. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at connect at drjoan.ca. And you can also reach me on Instagram at worldpeace2021. And I have just res resurrected an old account called Becoming Beautiful I Am. And you can also find me on LinkedIn at Joan Samuels Dennis, RN, PhD. So until next time, rise, forgive, and live fearlessly.